You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. And welcome to the show where we clean up the highways of cultural conversation. It's a messy job, but somebody's got to do it. And we have stepped in or swooped in, as you may say, uh, to talk about culture and the news. Dustin, what's going on in the news today? Well, I saw a fascinating article from uh, Wired. It was on Wired.com where I saw it, of course, because I do all my consumption online, uh, discussing the fact that human beings are are incapable as a species of uh, space travel, long-term space travel, and going to Mars and you know, pass beyond that, et cetera, et cetera, because our bodies would be obliterated by the radiation and the hazards and we're just we're just we're suited perfectly suited as a species to living on this earth but we are not suited to space travel so there's a lot of scientists out there opining that uh, we have to genetically alter ourselves in the future to make future humans a a distinct space traveling species so I found this enormously fascinating for a variety of reasons. A, I think we are the first species uh, that has, you know, regardless of what you think of evolution, you're thinking of evolution, just accepting it for uh, as a fact for a second. Um, we are the first species in the history of evolution to consider evolving ourselves genetically which is both at the same time fascinating and extremely frightening. And uh, yeah, so, and then the article went on and just started discussing eugenics and, you know, why this was not particularly eugenics because we're not forcing anybody to stop their lifestyle. We are just saying, hey, we're going to pick the best and brightest and we're going to uh, use the science that we have to alter their DNA to create this new species of a human being, I guess it wouldn't even be Homo sapiens anymore. It'd probably be a distinct genetic species, um, which uh, is created in a lab and is is able to space travel. And there's just so much there to think about and to discuss. I just I don't even know where to begin. What do you I think? think it's very, I think it's very telling. So all of these scientific topics you just brought up uh, used to be the domain of science fiction. And I remember watching Star Trek when I was a kid and they were talking to computers and they had tablets that they would tap on and, you know, so many, and they would just talk to the lights and they would turn off and so many things just seem so foreign and exotic and almost all of that now exists. Um, you know, I talked to my house the same way uh, they talked to the spaceship in Star Trek and I'll tell my house to turn the lights on. It turns the lights on until it's turned down the AC it turns down the AC. And um, these topics, while they're kind of new to science, they're not as new to science fiction. And I think it's very telling that almost all of the science fiction that explores the idea of genetic modification uh, is uh, dystopian. <laughs> There's not a lot of utopian worlds where uh, genetic modification leads to a utopia, partly because human nature is such that it gives a lot of that power is a corrupting power and people are going to want to modify away otherness. Uh, we already see that with um, old school genetic modification, right? Like, Oh, you're not allowed to marry this person because um, 
you would create a child that's a mix and we're trying to get rid of otherness. We don't want to encourage otherness. And by mixing the races, you're creating more otherness. And if, if that's how our ancestors handled it with like old school genetic modification, how much, how much worse is it going to be with new school stuff? I mean, ultimately uh, when you get into a lot of these sorts of things, when it comes to modifying somebody's genes, it's like, who is the biggest advocate of that? It's like, Oh yeah, it was Adolf Hitler. It's like, that's, that's a problem when he is your patron saint, the man in history who was the most passionate for your topic. He wasn't the only one. It was a popular uh, topic back then, but um, yeah, we are fact, Thomas. Yeah. Uh, Helen Keller was also a proponent of eugenics. Fun fact. So there, I will say eugenics was super popular. I think Edison was into it and Ford was into it. Uh, a lot of the quote unquote heroes of the early 20th century were, you know, big fans of, of eugenics. And they thought it was the path to the future that we could make Superman, that we could breed a better race of humans. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. The tools change, uh, but the, the dream lives on. And, I was just listening to the news this morning, or there was some new study about how toxic uh, moon dust is to mice and how it just causes their cells to break down. Um, and so I think you can make a strong case that we are not a spacefaring species at this time. <laughs> so uh, while we do, you know, travel in space, at least low earth orbit, um, it's uh, not exactly the healthiest thing for us. Although people do grow taller in space. Do you remember this? They had uh, two twins, two identical twins, and they sent one to the International Space Station for several months. And um, Yeah, they actually mentioned that in the article. Yeah. yeah. He comes back two inches taller because the uh, Earth is compressing all of our joints uh, down on themselves. Now, I will say, if you want to get taller without going to space, just go to a chiropractor. I went to a chiropractor for six months, and I was an inch taller at the end. It was amazing. I was one for the first time in my life. I'd always been nearing it, but I'd never gotten there. So uh, maybe there are other ways of getting there. But uh, yeah, space, I I don't think the Earth is nearly as at risk of like destruction as uh, people say with climate change. I, I do believe that climate change is real and I am not would not be surprised if we're contributing to it. When I study history, I see that there's often times of climate change and it typically leads to the collapse of empires. So certain civilizations may not, be able to survive. But I think overall, um, the planet's going to do fine. I, I think we flatter ourselves if we think that we can permanently make the planet unhospitable to humans. I know, and I know that that's like the big motivation. It's like, we have poisoned the planet, so we need to flee so we can poison other planets. It's like, how is that better? Anyway, I, I don't know. I, I have many thoughts on this. You, I, you know... Okay, first of all, you said something that I got I got to chew on a little bit is the climate change thing. Um, I, I agree with you largely. You know, maybe we are contributing, um, but I also looking back at the what we know from our uh, from our infinitesimally little small little human brains about the history of the universe and uh, of, of of our Earth specifically. <laughs> it has been a history of change. You know, the Earth is not a static thing. Um, our species is 200 to 300,000 years old. It's a blip on the surface of the history of the earth. And, you know, within that time, we went through as a species uh, uh, hot spells and cold spells, ice ages and, and, and heat ages and global warming and global cooling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
First thing to note is, uh, from what I understand, global warming is a lot better of a situation than global cooling. Uh, global warming, you know, we can still grow crops. Uh, crops are still are, are still to the point where we can feed the world. Whereas global cooling, now you're talking about significant portions of the world which are no longer viable to produce food, and that is a dangerous situation. I think uh, more people have probably died. When I say people, I mean human beings, Homo sapiens, have probably died as a result of global cooling than global warming. So, um, you know, not to get too far down that, that, uh, that, that climate change path. Are we experiencing climate change? Absolutely. Because the earth is not static and the earth is constantly changing. And we are, we are always, regardless of how much or how little humans actually contribute, we are always in the midst of some type of change on this earth. So there's that. Let's stick a pin in that. Um, going back to the article and, you know, eugenics and altering our species, I think what I find most fascinating if we change ourselves, because, you know, we as humans have been uh, have been experimenting with genetics for as long as we have tamed other animals. So, you know, if you're a cattle rancher, genetics is a huge part of, of your program because you want to select the genetics for uh, the cows that make the best dairy cows or beef cows or whatever kind of cows you're trying to produce. So we as human beings have been tampering with genetics by selective breeding for you know, hundreds of thousands of years. It's the first time that we, we, uh, we uh, or maybe tens of thousands of years, the first time we domesticated an animal. But now we're talking about not going beyond just selective breeding of ourselves. Now we're talking about actually trying to take other animals' genes and splice them onto our own. Not unlike what, you know, the big corporate devil that is Monsanto, and I say that with a little bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek, uh, has been doing with crops. I am not a fan of Monsanto. We won't go into the political uh, politics of that in this uh, podcast. But what they are doing is they are not selectively breeding uh, corn, for the sake of example. They are taking other species' uh, genetics and completely altering the genome of corn. Of course, I live out in the country, and I live next to several uh, crop Rowland fields. And one of the things that my wife and I noted when we first moved out here is you look at a cornfield in the height of its growing season, um, and you will see a field that has nothing but corn. And I think a lot of people don't understand how incredible, and for me, it's actually kind of scary, how incredible that is. You have this patch, large patch of dirt, which isn't growing anything but corn, and one of the reasons for that is, is because you know, one of the varietals of corn that uh, these uh, that Monsanto sells is impervious to uh, these uh, herbicides. So you can grow this corn, you can spray the heck out of the field with herbicide, and no other plant species can compete with your corn. And so your corn absorbs all the nutrients, and so you have this eerie situation where you have only corn growing. And anybody who is ever entertained any idea of gardening, whether it's, you know, landscaping, uh, you're around your house or actually doing a little gardening in your backyard, you know how insanely frustrating it is to keep the quote unquote weeds out of your garden. So to see this on a mass scale just goes to show you how incredible, uh, the, the, the Monsanto's are of the world and actually splicing genes into corn. That said, again, uh, from what I understand of what they do, it's not a very exact science. They kind of, uh, they throw a bunch of spit wads at the wall and they see what sticks. And whatever they do, something's been sticking. 
So bringing this back to human beings, what kind of species are we going to produce here? And are we going to produce a species of, of a new homo species that is no longer even capable of breeding with itself? Are we going to create a species that's no longer even capable of breeding with us? So, for example, you breed a lion and a tiger and you create the mythical liger. It's the coolest uh, of all you animals. You have an animal, <laughs> the coolest of all animals. A real animal, by the way, folks. You have, but the animal is completely sterile. It it has both the superpowers of a lion combined with the superpowers of a tiger, but it has no ability to breed. So the only way you can create a liger is by breeding another lion with another tiger. And even then it's 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 a long shot to actually make a viable one. So I'm I'm thinking about this down the road. I'm like, we're talking about creating a new human species. What does that mean for the future of humanity? Does that mean we can no longer breed outside the confines of a test tube? And I, I start thinking of, of course, you know, we all, like you said, Thomas, it's always dystopian, right? It's hard to think of a utopian version of, uh, of, of, of genetic engineering. But I'm just like, I'm just thinking about the massive consequences for our species when you're talking about creating an entirely new species. And, and I'm, 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 I'm simultaneously fascinated, appalled. And just all kinds of crazy emotions when I think about what. Yeah, it's that the is. superhero conundrum. I was talking with my brothers about this, and we we're like, "What would happen to society if we created or we had real superheroes?" And I was like, "Well, if we had just a handful, let's say Marvel universe levels of superheroes, you would create what are effectively god kings, these like superhuman people who are able to rule." Uh, the world by the nature of their power. Uh, either that or they would be hunted to extinction. You kind of have that outcome. This whole idea that you could have these people who are more powerful living at peace with everyone is hard to believe. <laughs> we don't... Right, just, just like, like X-Men. X-Men. And so and my brother's like, okay, well, we create, you know, half the people were superheroes. And I was like, okay, well, at that point, now we've created a caste system where you have the upper caste, the people with the special powers, and then you have the lower caste, the people without the special powers. And it's basically the God King's problem amplified. So now uh, half the world's being you know, ruled, they're subjected by the ha- other half of the world. And sure, there's conflict, but at the end of the day, you're a lesser person if you don't have powers. And let's imagine that those powers are in a hierarchy, right? So at the top, you have the guy with invulnerability who can fly with laser eyes, and he rules over a nation. And then he has subject superheroes who have, you know, just invisibility or just the ability to jump really high, right? They're a lower caste of superhero, but they're still greater than a standard human who has, you know, standard human abilities. And there's a, a great a book that explores this. Uh, called um, Steelheart by Brandon Sanderson, where uh, the superheroes are all evil. They're all corrupted <laughs> by their power. And the humans are, are like resistance fighters. It's very fascinating. And so we kept with this thought experiment. It's like, okay, so half the uh, humans as superheroes, if you modify half the humans, you create a caste system, that's no good. So what happens if we have all of the humans have superpowers? 
And that's where you get to the um, uh, Incredibles, right? If everyone is special, then no one is, right? The, the, suddenly, there are no superheroes, but you also have no more humans. You've created a whole new species, which is its own problem. Like, humanity is something worth preserving, in my opinion. And and so the, the conclusion was there's no real way to have superheroes uh, to create them, uh, that would work, like at least in this thought experiment. You either ha- you have you have to pick one of three problems. You either have god kings, you have a caste system, or you create a whole new species. And in all three of those, it's worse than what we have right now. So while it's fun to think about superheroes in fiction, I don't think they would actually work if we could actually create them in real life. Interesting point about we've we've already both discussed fiction and science fiction. I think science fiction is important for this very reason, because I think it's the human brain, a lot of times very, very smart human being, uh, human brains, did thinking, uh, make, creating these thought experience about what would happen, what if. So we have, you know, think about the science fiction of the early 20th, uh, late 19th century, uh, Jules Verne, who conceived of the very first submarine in 20,000 leagues under the sea. And lo and behold, uh, a few decades later, now what do we have? We have submarines of this immense power and the U-boats in World War II. And so you know, science fiction is nothing more. I won't say nothing more. I don't want to trivialize anything. Science fiction to me is the human brain trying to sort out and play these what-if games in their in their heads. So going back to human beings in space, you have the Expanse series, right? Are you familiar with the Expanse series, Thomas? I'm not. So uh, it's a science fiction series. There's actually, uh, it's been televised, uh, Amazon.com bought the rights. I watched the first season. It's pretty good. Uh, It follows the books reasonably closely. Uh, But anyway, I highly recommend it for anybody who want to see, either read the book or uh, watch the series. I I recommend both. But uh, the Expanse series goes through the thought experiment of human beings colonizing our solar system. And all of a sudden, now we don't have... uh, uh, interplanetary war or intraplanetary war where you have, you know, the United States versus Russia. Now all of a sudden you have human beings do what human beings do. And you have earth versus Mars versus, you know, the asteroid belt. And you have these settlements of humans, which all have their own distinct interest. And now they're at war with each other doing what human beings do best bickering over scarce resources. And um, I, I kind of bring that back to science fiction and how important science fiction is to uh, to to force humans to kind of process the what ifs, you know, uh, Star Trek's or the the what ifs we meet an alien species. What if? What does our world look like then? So I think science fiction is very important for that process and bringing it back to the original article of of Wired and you know, changing ourselves. Now, all of a sudden, if you think about it in a weird, different way, we are creating an alien species. We are creating our own aliens. So maybe this whole time we are scared about this species coming from the outer universe and coming to visit us. And this whole time, uh, we are going to create the superior species that, <laughs> to put it, what you were just talking about, Thomas, has has the potential to dominate us, right? Because you know, if, if human beings do what human beings do, we're not going to make a worse species. We're not going to make a slave species. We're going to make a superior species that could potentially come back to dominate. So it's, it's just fascinating to think about. Um, and man, maybe I should write a science fiction novel about all this. We traveled the galaxy and discovered 
that we were the alien monsters after all. All along, we were the monsters. <laughs> we created our own darkness. Uh, and it's true. We, we carry that darkness in us. And going to space, giving us more power, amplifying us, amplifies both the darkness and the light. And what's cool about science fiction is that it helps create science. So science fiction writers are able to invent things without the limitations of what is possible. And they put all kinds of stuff in their books. But then actual scientists read those books and they start to ask a question, you know, what would it take to create a holodeck? Like, what would it take to create a hologram? And, you know, they think about it and they're like, actually... I think we can do this. And then suddenly you have dead Michael Jackson performing on stage as a hologram, not as a, like a zombie, uh, but as, as like, a re- I'm sure that's in the future too, <laughs> uh, but as like a recreation, right? And he, Michael Jackson went on tour around the world to cover his debts. Cause he died in massive debt. So his, his debtors are like, well, we own the rights to Michael Jackson. So we're going to make him continue to do concerts from the grave. Uh, and they would sell out arenas with Michael Jackson's hologram performing on stage. This is not science fiction. This is what actually happened when actual Michael Jackson died. And the other benefit of science fiction is it allows us to think through the ramifications of the technology before the technology gets here. And a good example of this is robots. Um, So Isaac Asimov was writing about robots in 1942. And in 1942, he came up with the three laws of robotics because he was thinking about, you know, if we create these autonomous creatures, we're going to need to create them with a set of moral principles, which is a really fascinating idea. It's almost like once we become gods, we have to create 10 commandments for our creatures, just like God created for us, except Isaac Asimov didn't have 10 commandments. He just had three commandments. He said, uh, the first one is a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Then the third law is a robot must uh, protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. And he explores the ramifications of these laws in his books. And to spoil his whole book series, they're all connected. And in the future, basically robots take full control over humanity to keep it safe. <laughs> because of the first rule. Because there's nothing in the first law that says you must protect human freedom or human agency. It's only harm. And, you know, what is harm? It's really fascinating, his books and how they explore it. But what's happened is that robots kill people now. There have been 61 robot-reported injuries and deaths over the last uh, 25 years. The first one was in 1979. Robert Williams uh, was the first person killed by a robot which is really interesting to explore the like moral ramifications of that. If a robot kills somebody, who's at, who's at fault, right? Is the programmer who programmed the uh, robot, is that person at fault? Is it the robot's fault? And, um, you know, we fortunately have been thinking through these things for decades before they came about. And that's, you know, Thank God for science fiction. <laughs> it's helped us, uh, you know, better be able to handle the future. And I do find that people who read science fiction are able to adapt to change better because they've already been, they've, they've kind of saw it coming. Whereas people who don't read science fiction are constantly just overwhelmed at the right rate of change around them. Thomas, I do have to correct you in one one aspect, and I'm kind of sorry to say this, but uh, actually, robots have been killing human beings for uh, a long time. 
uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was a thing called the Clone Wars, and <laughs> the robots killed a lot of humans. They weren't good at it, but they did kill quite, quite a few humans. So, Roger, I mean, Roger. There is that. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I stand corrected. The I forgot about the Clone Wars. Uh, the terrible, terrible time in uh, history. It was. It was just an awful. Well documented. Uh, I, I have to say that the, uh, the the first three docu series were not that great, but uh, you know four through six were just phenomenal docu series. Uh, I recommend everybody watch them. There's been some uh, revisionist then, uh, history, the, though, I don't appreciate. Uh, yeah, and then the the, uh, the, uh, the latest docu-series <laughs> has just been just been terrible. Just terrible. Uh, I will, I'm not going to hop on their awful bandwagon, but uh, the latest Star Wars movies have been, uh, I will say, uh, underwhelming, mediocre, still enjoyable, but uh, yeah. How did we get on the Star Wars? You you brought it up from the from the robots killing people, but we're we're talking about gene modification in the creation of new superheroes is in superhumans, yeah. And what does that look like? So let's let's imagine, for instance, uh, let's do one more thought experiment, and let's say that Hitler had access to the CRISPR technology. So CRISPR is an acronym for gene editing technology where you can edit somebody's genes. It's what Monsanto is using to create their super corn. And there's a lot of talk of what it would look like if we use this technology on humans. So what would Hitler do if he had access to CRISPR? You know, and he has in his mind that the perfect person, is, and I'm not that familiar with Hitler, so um, you'll have to correct me, but he had this idea of like German, blue-eyed, uh, blonde-haired, you know, strong, square-jawed um, Germans as like the quintessential human right like that's what he thought everyone should be even though that's not what he was am, am, yeah, am i right ironic. on this yeah no you, you you nailed it the aryans uh, the aryan super race the master race. okay yeah. so and when he said master race he meant that in the sense of he wanted all the he, he didn't necessarily want to kill all the other races he just wanted to enslave all the other races uh turned out the other races didn't want to be enslaved it didn't work out well for him and you know history has has moved on but it hasn't moved on that far and what would he do if he could edit somebody's genes to turn them into an Aryan? And let's say that he was able to do that. Let's say he won the war and he edited all of the world except for Japan and its conquests into Aryans. Uh, and he was at the same time able to get rid of diseases and, you know, improve humans from the, you know, things that plague us and improve life expectancy to 150 years. You know, I would not be surprised if there weren't some scientists uh, right now who'd take that deal. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, get rid of all of the ethnicities as long as we can improve life expectancy. And I think that that's, that's really scary. And I don't know if there's the willingness of the nations of the world to rise up and put it down again. Like if it were to, ha you know, if, let's say North Korea. No, let, North Korea is a bad example. Let's say Switzerland says, hey, we've decided we're going to start editing our population and make super Swiss. You know, would the world be like, no, we're going to stop this. We're going to invade Switzerland and keep this from happening. I don't think so. I don't I don't see that happening. And so then we get back into the superhero conundrum where we have assuming that they're able to actually make superhumans, which I think is a big assumption. Uh, you know, it's very likely that they'll add strengths and weaknesses. I don't think we'll be able to out God God. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it doesn't stop us from it trying. It won't stop right? us from trying. And 
you know, let's say you create somebody and their life expectancy is reduced to 30 years because of all the gene modification, but they're, you know, stronger and they can jump higher and they can withstand more damage. You made Captain America, except instead of the super serum making him live longer, it makes him live shorter. I could totally see a totalitarian dictator using his, you know, army serum, his Hulk serum on troops to give him an edge in battle. Like I, I can, totally, I mean, you know, we saw that kind of with the Janus series of creating a whole um, people group of, you know, suicide warriors uh, for the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it's uh, I, for one, would like to stand up for humanity <laughs> and good old fashioned humanity, unmodified, untainted by science. Old, dirty humanity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ethical. I think there's a lot of ethical problems in our future. I mean, and uh, it's an interesting question you bring up, you know, are we as a, as a race or as a collective of cultures and nations willing to go to war with another culture or nation who is trying to, um, who is trying to perfect the human race? You know, first of all, I have to comment that uh, super Swiss sounds like a really fancy cheese. Uh, so if they do do that, I'm going to have to advise that their branding go with a different name, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's an ethical dilemma. I, Earlier in the show mentioned that uh, Helen Keller, for those who don't know, she was the very famous uh, uh, deaf and blind woman who learned to communicate through touch and uh, um, other other methods earlier in the, the 20th century. Helen Keller was a proponent of eugenics, and one has to wonder why. And I can only guess. I'm not a, an expert on Helen Keller. She might have written on this, and I'm just I'm just not aware. But as I, as I try to uh, get in the mind of Helen Keller, why would she be in favor of a system that would have, um, that would have gotten rid of her existence? It would have, you know, whether it, uh, whether it killed her when she was an infant, she just never would have existed because of the ideal of eugenics. So why would she be in favor of this? And the only thing I can think of is that she was unhappy in her body and she wished that she was in a perfect body. And she would never wish uh, her unhappiness on anybody else. You know, that this is my me imputing my thoughts on why she would be a promoter. Um, and so we have to wonder, you know, what the, the trade off of, you know, I can cure cancer, but it means that I have to get rid of half of humanity. You know, perhaps that's the cure for cancer is, you know, the true cure for cancer isn't a drug. It's not uh, a new, um, you know, a, a new chemical compound. It's the idea of um, I can cure cancer because cancer is a, uh, it's, it's a genetic problem. We've, we isolated the gene, but that means that uh, only people without the gene can procreate from here on out. You know, a, a true eugenic type situation. Is the cure for cancer worth wiping out the potential humanity of you know 50% of our species and what do we lose from that what do we gain from that and it's a really i mean it's an unanswerable moral and ethical dilemma that people could just go round and round about i'm i'm along i'm i'm kind of with you thomas i think that you know, good old fashioned human procreation is the way to go um i think that uh the 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 rules of evolution have done pretty good throughout our 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 history and i am an evolutionist i do believe in evolution just to put it out there and i, I think it's done a pretty good job um but i'm also uh i'm also a believer in god and deist so yeah that's an in- interesting uh interesting collection of beliefs i have so uh, we can talk about that in another show uh, 
Any last comments, Thomas? Yeah, real quick, I do want, since we're talking about history, we have done this once before in a sense. Uh, back in the 1800s, there was a tribe of people called the Thuggy. That's where we get the word thug. And um, they had this religious, and they were in India, and they had this religious belief where they would travel with travelers and then with a couple of days and then kill them. And they just went around India murdering people. And uh, it was really terrible. And so the British went through this terrible suppression of this entire people group. And what they effectively did was they would capture them and put them in concentration camps that weren't like torturous. They were just like holding camps or um, you could say refugee camps. But they separated the men from the women and just waited it out until basically they bred away the thuggy because the the men and the women weren't able to create new thuggy babies or uh, at least the ones that were captured and the thuggy were mostly suppressed. Uh, and so, you know, you may be like, well, India is better off because this terrible murderous tribe is no longer going around and murdering people or there's far fewer of them. It's like, yeah, but at the cost of the existence of the tribe. Uh, I don't think 1800s British were weeping too many tears over what they did, but it, it's something to think about. And, and, you know, is, is the uh, results worth the cost of getting them? Uh, we do want to know what you think though, uh, about any of this gene editing, uh, space travel, uh, the superhero conundrum, uh, drop us a line at, uh, libertybuzzard.com forward slash zero two eight. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at taxmantom.com.